Hi, Mary. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Good, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to check in on how you reckon hybrid meetings are going now. Most importantly, are we still calling them hybrid meetings or are we allowed to just call them meetings now? I don't know whether the remote working naming committee needs to have a <laughs> hybrid meeting to tell us whether that's happening or not. But anyway, hybrid <laughs> meetings. What's been the experience? Meetings about meetings about meetings again. I've been to a few hybrid meetings, actually, and I've sat on both sides, which is quite interesting to compare the different approaches. And I've also been involved in a kind of firm-wide discussion just earlier this week, in fact, on kind of sharing tips. And I think probably the consensus is they're quite hard, but that's because none of us are used to them. So just the same as we went to virtual meetings 20 months ago, we're all, I think, finding challenges with hybrid working. I think the main tips I've picked up are if you've got a mix of people in a room and then other people on just their faces, I suppose, on the screen. The chair's role is so important in this new world. And I guess that harps back to some of the stuff we've talked to Zoe about before in terms of groupthink, but just making sure that every voice is heard equally, because now if you're the chair sitting in the room, the way that you observe the meeting versus being the chair that's remote and joining virtually, I think is quite different. And actually a colleague was reflecting on, she feels that it's most effective when the chair themselves is remote. Now, clearly, it's not always possible. It's not always preferred. But I thought that was quite an interesting insight. But I guess really what we concluded was that just we just need to be quite open about the fact that all of us are going to struggle a bit with this to start with. Share experience, whether that's internally, whether that's with clients. Obviously, if any of the listeners have top tips, then do send them our way. We can all learn from each other, I think, on this. What's your experience been, Dan? It's funny, pretty much none of my clients have gone to hybrid meetings yet. So all of my client meetings have still been fully remote. So interesting. Generally going okay. Yeah. Although one interesting anecdote actually, one of my clients where it's a relatively new committee sort of situation for various reasons, a lot of different parties have been added to it over the last year or so. So it's quite a big meeting now. And there's no way that very many people at all have met each other in person. That is starting to get a bit tricky to manage in remote because it was even situations where the chair wasn't quite sure who was talking and got the wrong name sort of thing because it's difficult because I know people never met them. And I was starting to think, okay, that's one that could actually benefit maybe from bringing people together a little bit more just because it is so tough. Although I have to say virtual meetings where everyone has their name at the bottom of their little picture. (laughs) (laughs) It's good if you forget names quite easily, but not so good for recognizing who's speaking, I suppose. But there we go. There's definitely pros and cons, I think, of both approaches, and we'll just need to muddle through a bit. I think for internal meetings, it's sort of super easy. There's a lot of hybrid internal ones. Some of them are just catch-ups, team, project stuff, where you're just listening in or you can you contribute. That seems to work pretty seamlessly, I would say. It's more the kind of sort of set-piece ones where you're trying to bring people together and it needs a bit of managing that's a bit more challenging. Agreed. And the buzz in our office still seems to be going pretty strong, right? It's kind of like, feels like we're sort of back and people are there running now, doesn't it? It's good. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've found that if there's a social or a lunch, then the office is particularly full. (laughs) But that's a good way of enticing people back, isn't it? So from my perspective, the more the better, because I think it's good to keep that buzz and the excitement that we've had in the last few weeks. Brilliant. On with the episode. Indeed. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. 
Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi. So this week, we thought we'd take a little bit of a deep dive into a particular topic that's really topical right now, and that's the issue of power prices here in the UK. And joining us for that conversation, delighted to welcome Rajiv Gogna, a partner in our energy analytics team. Rajiv, welcome. Thanks very much, Dan and Mary, for having me on. Hi, Rajiv. So before we start, could you please give the listeners a sense of your role at LCP? I lead a team that builds a product called LCP Enact. So Enact is a website aimed at traders and analysts in the power sector, helping them identify what's going on in the market right now, what prices are doing, and us actually predicting what prices will be doing sort of over the coming few hours. Nice. Cool. And before we get into all things related to power pricing, Rajiv, why don't you tell us one thing that we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Yeah, I think my proudest achievement still to date is leading my university darts team to national victory. Wow, that's wow. great. Is university darts similar to when you watch darts on the TV where it looks like the biggest pub in the world? Absolutely, same quality as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Is that something you still keep up? In fact, is that, sorry, is that a dartboard I can see behind you? I think it is actually, isn't it? That is a dartboard with a worrying amount of dust over it, actually. So it hasn't been used as much as my uni days, sadly. Okay, well, let's get into it, shall we? I mean, Rajiv, I guess we need to probably take a little bit of a step back, sort of set the scene here. So why don't you talk us through a little bit about the real basics of how the UK power market actually functions, sort of in general, just to set the scene for us here. There are a number of different generators around the country. You'll have wind plants, nuclear plants, gas plants. They are on the generation side and they'll all be looking to sell electricity. The other side of that, you've got suppliers. So you might be represented by EDF or Eon, etc. They represent all the customers and the suppliers will go and buy that electricity on your behalf, essentially. And this can happen at a number of different stages, all the way from years ahead where your supplier might say, I want to contract for my customers in a couple of winters time, right up to my customers are going to need a bit more demand in the next hour. So I need to buy more power on their behalf as well. So essentially, you've got this large base of generators and suppliers all trading electricity between themselves. Got it. So we've got this market, we've got the buyers and sellers. Well, that makes sense to me. I guess that feels familiar. What's the role of the national grid in that? Because I guess that's important here, isn't it? All those bilateral contracts, those trades are happening up to an hour before that power is delivered. So let's say we're looking at 12 till 12.30 today. Everyone will be trading that power, but then National Grid will stop everyone trading at 11 o'clock and say, we're going to take over and we're actually going to look at where is the supply, where is the demand. And they need to do that because the priority is making sure the lights stay on. So they might then at that stage say, not enough power has been sold for the customers that we see coming up. We've got our demand forecast. So we're now going to take over and start buying power or selling power nationally to make sure that supply does equal demand. So we enter a bit of a slightly smaller market there where generators might say, yep, if you want me to turn up, I can turn up for X. So that's then contracting with National Grid. And does that work both ways? So I'm trying to grasp all of this in my mind. If all of the supplying companies have actually ordered slightly more power than they need, can they sell it back? Does it work that way around too? Yes, absolutely. So, And what you'll often get is a number of different actions going on where people are being turned up and turned down. So kind of getting into the details here, but say you've got too much generation in Scotland and you can't get all that power down to south of the border, then they might be both turning people down in Scotland and turning people up in England, for example. Okay. And is that what you mean by balancing actions? That's, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's balancing. 
Okay. I'm trying to do a bit of jargon busting in advance of talking about some analysis that you've been doing recently, because I know you did a blog recently that we'll share in the show notes that was really, really interesting, but it's so full of jargon that I want to make sure <laughs> that everyone follows. So the other bit that I picked up, I wasn't sure what it was to start with, was day ahead prices. Do you want to just explain what those are? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, you can essentially trade power at multiple different time intervals. You could be trading powers years in advance or hours in advance. But I guess there's kind of a defining moment the day before where everyone enters an auction around sort of 9, 10 a.m. and a price will be set for tomorrow. That's essentially the most liquid auction. Everyone will go into that. So you'll see lots of trades and that then becomes a very useful reference point for what do we value the price of electricity as because you're close enough to know a lot of the driving forces then around what that power should be priced at. So that's a standardized price for a form of energy at that point in time, which is a day before. Exactly. That is effectively a price that you can buy electricity at at that day ahead stage. But it's kind of referenced quite a lot because it's a useful benchmark. We're talking electricity here, and that's from any source. So it could could be wind, it could be gas, it could be nuclear, it could be anything, anything. Yep, exactly. It's fascinating, isn't it? I guess there's a lot of similarities to certain financial markets there and what you describe also some differences as well that bit with the national grid stepping in for the last hour i can't find an obvious parallel in financial markets there may be sort of market makers or clearing houses kind of thing but it doesn't feel like it's quite the same thing but, but i mean regardless of that there's just the sheer complexity of it is what strikes me i mean i plug in my computer and i pay my monthly electricity bill to eon and i just had no idea this was all going on in the background that they were constantly engaging in auctions and things were being bought and sold and everything to make that happen it's kind of amazing when you peel it back amazing and yet most of the time not at all in the headlines but right exactly (laughs) the last couple of weeks have been slightly different because even the national news has been reporting on power prices increasing so rajiv could you give us a feel for firstly what's happened and then we'll talk about the drivers for why yeah absolutely so I guess high level power prices are at record highs. We've been seeing a steady increase over the last couple of months, largely driven by the global gas price increases. Certainly over the last few weeks, we've then hit a bit of a perfect storm as we've been referring to as in our analysis, where we've had one of the lowest wind periods on record. We've seen these incredibly high gas prices. And we have had a number of power plants not available to generate so that all of those have kind of combined into leading to very high pricing. But going back to the supply and demand thing, that's kind of, I mean, that sounds like those are supply side issues or has there been any sort of difference on the demand side? Has that just been normal? Very much supply side. Demand has been pretty much as expected for this time of year and much lower than, say, peak demand for the year, which we'd see coming up in winter. Just to really go back over this ground again when we say prices have gone up we're talking about the day ahead prices there or are we talking about that last minute hour in advance really good question so yeah it's both of them so that day ahead price for context is usually between sort of 50 and 100 pounds per megawatt hour which is the unit of electricity we've seen that trading at the day ahead stage between 1500 and 2500 pounds in the last few weeks Going forward to that hour before stage, we've seen prices up at £4,000. And I assume the hour before stage is often most expensive because people are desperate at that stage. So you'd expect that ratio, but just not at those elevated levels. Exactly. Yeah. And we've seen at those very tight periods, a couple of assets knowing they'll be needed and able to charge kind of very high premiums at that stage. And that feels kind of wrong to me. I don't know about you, Dan, but just as a non-expert, how do they get away with that when it's kind of national energy and everyone needs to turn the lights on? There are some 
mechanisms and I guess references that refer to this, which is around the value of lost load. So just kind of a one minute primer on that. National Grid have a price at which they would effectively value blackouts. So that's at £6,000 a megawatt hour. And that's essentially saying customers would rather pay up to £6,000 than lose electricity. But above that, we think it's worth disconnecting people. So if there is a 50% chance of blackouts happening, then reasonably the value of that electricity should be £3,000. So there is a precedent to say, well, the tighter things get, the higher the price goes up to that £6,000. In practice, what we've seen is slightly blockier where some assets just say, I know if I'm used, there won't be an issue. And if I'm not used, there will be an issue. So are able to kind of command that price a bit more. I guess part of that just stems from the whole setup of it as a sort of a free market or a semi-free market, right? I guess that just has pros and cons, doesn't it? It has the pros that you sort of incentivize people to find ways of bringing down the cost. But the cons of that is that in weird times of supply and demand, people can engage in what sort of looks a bit like price gouging, but is just simply an extreme mismatch of supply and demand coming through. But actually, so what I'm trying to pin down is this getting back to that. So who is paying those really? So you're talking prices that are more than 10 or 20 times more than what would be usualized. So this isn't just like a little extra. This is vastly more. So I'm trying to go back and so who's paying that? And this is the energy, this is the eons and the EDFs who are buying it from the assets on our behalf, sort of. Yeah, so you've got kind of that day ahead stage or before where your your EONs and EDFs will be paying the generator directly, those kind of prices. You end up in that hour before stage in balancing where it'll be National Grid buying that power. But ultimately, it's all on the consumer's behalf. So there are numerous different reallocations and charges, etc. But ultimately, it's all going to end up on consumer bills one way or another. Okay. And one of the reasons it makes national news is that exact fact that people might expect to be paying more for their energy bills at the moment and maybe in the near term. Are there any second order impacts on consumers? So you've got the higher actual energy bills, but is there anything else that you'd expect to sort of feed through? I guess if it increases the cost of any company making anything that then gets sold to consumers, you might expect other prices to increase or is that double counting it? No, I don't think that is double counting. I think you would see those, but even more extreme, we've seen certain manufacturing industries have to reduce production. So sort of recently in the last week, we've seen a lot of concern around meat production due to lack of CO2 being able to get there. We've seen fertilizer industries reduce their output, particularly over high periods. We've seen steel, the same thing. We're certainly seeing it touch different impacts of society and flow through back to the end user in different ways. That's another concern then. So this is not just about consumers maybe facing higher bills for electricity. We're talking proper economic sort of impairment. Any industry that's really facing both gas or power at huge expense on their balance sheet and the examples I just listed there were really gas driven, we would expect those to need to flow through ultimately. What about blackouts then? I mean, how close are we to that being a reality? Is that a legitimate worry or is that just sort of scaremongering? It's not too big a concern, actually. The margin is there at the moment. Margin should just define that being really your supply minus demand. So what we've seen is we haven't really been too concerned about there not actually being enough generation. It's just come out of premium. As we look forward to winter, we've got a few different competing factors going on there around, obviously, demand is going to get higher, it's going to get colder, it's going to get darker, so less solar energy. But we will also see a number of plants come back from their outages as they prepare for those higher winter periods. So we do expect that margin to be there, but 
it's certainly quite tight. And if we start seeing events like the fire on the interconnector that we saw recently and any unexpected trips that we might see or a particularly low wind winter, we could certainly see a number of expensive periods being taken again. Can we just pause a minute on wind? Because you mentioned that just earlier in terms of one of the drivers for recent increases in prices. And particularly in your article, you go through the kind of abnormally low levels of wind we've seen in the last couple of months. Do you have a feel for what the drivers are behind that? I mean, I assume that sort of thing just randomly happens from time to time. But is it driven to our knowledge by impacts of global warming or is that is it just a fluke? I'm certainly no meteorologist. I think we sort of take it as this is potentially one of those tail events that you do see. We do see extended periods of low wind output. This has come at a very unfortunate time of hitting a number of other factors as well. In terms of those more general takeaways, I mean, the ways I've seen this covered in the press have varied to two extremes. On the one side, you've got people saying, oh, well, exactly, this is the sort of mishaps you can expect when you depend too much on renewable energy. On the other hand, you've got people saying, no, 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 the solution to this is more renewable energy, not less, because the problem was gas prices. Where would you stand on that? I get that it's complex, and those are probably the two simplifications, but where would you stand on that sort of spectrum? Who's right there? Yeah, I think kind of zooming out, we know we need to decarbonize. So I think from a personal perspective anyway, we can't land on, we need to reverse our trajectories there. But I think what this has demonstrated is we're maybe not equipped to deal with that very renewable heavy system in these perfect storm events, which will happen again if you increase the reliance on wind and focus on that, then if it doesn't turn up, you end up with these problems. So that really incentivizes the need for battery storage for longer duration storage. So we could be talking kind of multiple day or seasonal storage there. That's where you start talking about hydrogen and aspects like that. But we also do need to think about those diversified baseload technologies that we can implement that are low carbon. So thinking about the CCS, so carbon capture storage technologies as well that can be there as backup as well. So on that then, Rajiv, I mean, I know your team has done an awful lot of work. And I think we've talked a little bit about it before, but you've done an awful lot of work on the sort of future, the net zero grid, if you like, and what that means. And if I remember rightly, a couple of things stood out to me. One, you were saying there's likely to be a lot more demand for electricity because a lot of things that were provided by other forms of energy will be met by electricity. And a much bigger share of that will be renewables, of which wind will be a huge, huge part. And so, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, a big takeaway there is the need for storage batteries. I mean, I'm probably just stating what to you is blindingly obvious, but <laughs> that broadly the shape of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and not just batteries, but there are other forms of storage there as well. But yeah, fundamentally, we're going to have a huge increase in electricity demand from a number of different areas. We need to be producing that electricity from renewable sources, but you will find days where the wind blows far too much and we need to capitalise on that and store it. And you'll find days where the wind doesn't blow enough. And so we need to use that backup. And what kind of time period does storage how far have we extended it so far? I appreciate technology is evolving rapidly, but if it's really windy three months ago, can I use that energy today or is it more of a kind of week to week thing? So in terms of, I guess, batteries get a lot of the buzz at the moment. Really, the technology around batteries is kind of one to two hours in terms of discharge. So you could store that energy and keep it there. But in terms of how much could you discharge out of that battery, you're really talking a couple of hours. Actually, the best form of storage we have for that long duration is our longest existing form of storage, which is called pump storage. And at its simplest, you use the energy to pump water up a hill. And then whenever you want to, you release that water and let it go down the hill. And that is obviously we can use that 
whenever we want to. So we're really, from a storage perspective, not quite there in terms of dealing with, say, a month of a system that is very highly penetrated with wind, but the wind doesn't really turn up. So we need to back up for that length of time. So we do need to invest in more storage, but longer duration storage as well. That's really interesting. I mean, I was I was reflecting a little bit over the summer. I was driving in my hybrid car actually a little bit and just reflecting how fossil fuels, sadly, in many ways, are just such an unbelievably efficient way of storing and transferring energy. Just reflecting on the time it takes to fill up your car with petrol versus charge up a car battery. It's just so vastly different. The amount of energy you transfer when you pump petrol into a car and it can just be stored there, just sat there for a long, long time, potentially. Whereas to try and do that with electricity, just I guess it's just so much more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that would be the industrial revolution and why it's so successful. So. And what are we seeing? So are we seeing a lot of innovative, I presume there are lots of innovative companies trying to work around this stuff, researchers looking at the problem and that sort of thing. Is that sort of where we're at? We see all sorts of research coming out from improving efficiencies of existing batteries, battery technologies, to using heavier water in those kind of examples I gave to kind of give it a bit more power there. And then thinking forward and in future technologies, can we develop hydrogen networks and can we be using those in the existing pipelines as well? So quite a wide range of technological approaches coming out. You mentioned in the tell us more about your role, the work that you do with LCP and ACT. Are there any sort of, I guess, insights you've picked up from the time you've been using ACT with clients in terms of the changing use of some of these newer technologies or the changing reaction of the national grid, for example, in terms of the technologies they choose to buy in that hour before usage? There's some things that have changed quite a bit and I guess some things that haven't changed too much. So I guess, firstly, just in terms of the energy market in itself, going back sort of 10 plus years, it wasn't that difficult to predict what was going to happen. You would have a lot of nuclear, a lot of coal, and you'd have your gas to really be the flexible asset there. As we're moving away, particularly from coal, you're introducing a lot of volatility in the system as we use more renewables. So increasingly, we're seeing our platform used for those very near-term decisions because things are a lot more volatile. In terms of what National Grid will be using, in some instances, they're still quite comfortable with what they can call on. And that's really because of the scale of those big gas plants, for example. We don't have the ability to turn up gigawatts of storage right now, but we do have that ability in gas. That said, there have been a number of different markets created for particularly batteries to help them regulate the grid and to back up, particularly in the case of if a plant tripped and you want to avoid a blackout, you need something like a battery that can turn on in a second and start producing power. We've seen National Grid become a lot more comfortable with how they utilize these new technologies. Thinking like super long term, are you sort of optimistic about the development and the scaling up of some of these battery technologies? Because I guess if you go back 10 years to someone like me, wind power seemed quite futuristic even sort of 10 years ago. And now we sort of talk about it as if it's completely normal. So do you think in 10 years time, we'll just be talking about these storage things as if they're completely normal? Or do you think that that's somehow harder and there's going to be a bigger barrier to it? I think it will be normalized very quickly. And where the acceleration of that adoption that I just mentioned, we're talking only in the last year to year and a half that National Grid have gone from not really using batteries very much to them being quite a key component of their balancing options. With that has then come a huge amount of investment in batteries as those price signals have emerged that they're very investable. So I think just that rate of adoption has just naturally meant that it's becoming something we're all very comfortable with. And now I think fully accept that it's going to be a key part of the future energy mix. I've got a question which is probably not that perfectly related to exactly what we were just (laughs) speaking about, but 
So in terms of as a consumer, I have a 100% renewable tariff for electricity and gas. How can they promise that it's 100% renewable if it's changing so much short term? I realise some of it's offsetting. I'm not that level of ignorant where I think that it's just a perfect supply of wind energy just to me type thing. But if it's changing at that such last minute, how do they manage that? The short answer is they don't. So if your supplier is telling you they are only buying green energy, that will be true. But that just means that another supplier will be buying less green energy fundamentally. And it's a great signal for suppliers say we're only going to buy green energy. It provides more incentive to build out those green energy projects. But ultimately, when National Grid take over at that stage, they will still be calling at the moment, certainly on those gas generators. So you can't say the electricity I just plugged in was only generated from green sources. It's going to be the percentage of green that was generating at the time. That's, I guess, a key thing that the electricity you're getting doesn't actually have anything to do with the electricity your supplier bought for you. It all just kind of goes onto the wires and it's all mixed up together. Okay, thank you. Interesting. Turning a little bit to trying to think through some of the takeaways for investors from the sort of recent episode and just more generally. So I guess a reasonable sort of asset class, reasonably sized asset class these days is offshore wind projects has become a pretty big asset class from almost nowhere 10 years ago. And when I've looked at those for investors, they're often governed by sort of what I understood to be sort of contracts to sell that electricity at sort of a fixed price. So I think from my understanding, most of those projects, the investors are not exposed to these sort of power price moves, I think. But I just wanted to double check, what's the latest on that? And what do you think investors should be taking away from this episode? You're exactly right. So the contracts are different there, I guess, that you're referring to remove that price risk for investors. So if you're investing in a wind plant, you face price risk and volume risk. So volume risk, if there's no wind, then you can't sell electricity. Price risk, if there's too much wind and the price goes low, you're not making enough. These contracts effectively fix that price. And they say, if the price is lower, the central body will top you up. And if the price is higher, they'll pay back. Interestingly, we've actually seen the first time where these wind plants are net paying back because of how high the prices have been. So there is effectively no subsidy at the moment for them. So in terms of that signal, as you say, this hasn't really changed for investors too much. It is part and parcel of wind that you would expect there to be low wind periods and then high wind periods. So I don't think this is going to really deter anyone. I think the bigger signals have probably come from some of the assets that have really capitalized on what's been going on recently. So any assets such as storage or flexible capacity that's been able to generate at these periods is able to see these prices coming and is able to use them has really delivered a really quite significant returns to their investors in the last few weeks. So we are certainly seeing much more pickup in investor appetite now that we're really seeing what this arbitrage actually looks like in reality. I think we've always said in theory, we will see £1,000 plus prices and it's part of what you'd expect in this kind of system, but people didn't really believe it and now we're seeing it. So a bit of a proof of concept there for some investors, which is helpful for the whole system. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So Rajiv, as we start getting towards the end of this episode, what's the one thing that you want listeners to take away? For me, I think it's not to use this as a period to think that renewables are a bad thing for the system. These events are expected when you have a high renewable system and should be accounted for, but we shouldn't be laying the blame on renewables and use it as a reason to deter away from it. That's super clear and come through really clearly. Thanks for helping us out with that. Rajiv, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about the UK power market? I think it's probably how vastly complex it is because (laughs) we've really only just scratched the surface of what's actually going on under the hood in those markets with all the different trades, etc. So yeah, as you said, just kind of plugging in and paying your bill is really the first percent of what's going on there. 
Fantastic. It's made my head explode already just getting that first <laughs> percent. So that's pretty should leave it at that. Yeah, I was going to say that we called this a deep dive, but probably you don't feel like it is at all. <laughs> and finally, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything at all? Yeah, I think this one's probably a little bit less related to work, but I've been listening to an interesting podcast called We're Not Talking About That Right Now by Jesse and BB Cave. So we'll give a shout out to that one. Nice. What's the broad premise? So it's two sisters, Jessie Cave, she's now an author, but she actually played Lavender Brown in the Harry Potter's films uh, okay. growing up. It's just a podcast of them chatting, to be honest, but it's very entertaining. Nice. Excellent. Cool. Check it out. Rajiv, it's been a great conversation today. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. It's really great to be on. Thanks, Rajiv. That's all from us this week on Investment Uncut. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate it. And if not, speak again next week. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.